11. Romans 11, verses 1 through 10 tonight. Romans 11, verses 1 through 10, if you would please follow along with me. Paul says, he writes, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Let me pray that the Lord would bless our time in his word this evening. Lord God, we ask that you would be with us in this time. Lord, we pray for those who were not able to make it tonight for various reasons, I think mostly due to illness. Lord, I pray that you would be with them and give them healing and bless them as they're away. Lord, as we've gathered here together tonight, I pray that as we sit on your word, that we would know and understand your truths. God, that you'd give me the strength to preach accurately and clearly your truth. And God, that your spirit would give us understanding, that you would change our hearts, that we would know you better, love you more, and we would glorify you. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Well, a lot of my life I've always enjoyed selling things. It's something that uh, I take much fun and pleasure in doing. Um, I always have. And I remember a long time ago, I was probably... I don't even know if I was junior high. I was probably younger than junior high. Um, and I started selling drum stuff. Uh, I was into drums. Uh, eventually, I started flipping drums and things like that. Like, I would buy drums, and I'd I kind of clean it up and get it, you know, upgraded and then sell it. And, uh, but before I did that, I was um, – I had all these different snare drums uh, I acquired. And I said, you know, I got to start selling some of these stuff. And this is before I really started getting into, like, public selling. So I, I – found out about Craigslist. Is Craigslist still around? Do people use Craigslist? Okay, so you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Okay. Um, and so I was like, ooh, Craigslist. I got to figure this out. So I started selling these snare drums on Craigslist. And, you know, it was like 200 bucks for a snare or 300 whatever it might be. And I remember one time I was having kind of this trouble selling this one snare. It wasn't a really great one. And all of a sudden, I got an email from the Prince of Nigeria. <laughs> and he was like, I need that snare. In fact, I know you're asking 200, but I want it so bad, I'll give you 600 for it. 
Oh, I need, and he just asked me all this information. And I was like, yes, I'm finally, I have the prince of Nigeria. He wants my snare. And he's, um, he's going to buy it for three times the price. And I was all excited. I told my parents. And my parents said, oh, oh, young boy. This is not the prince of Nigeria. And they explained to me how this was a hoax, how it was a fake, how it was a scam, and how I need to be careful on Craigslist because there's a lot of these people out there who are trying to steal my money and my information and my belongings and things like that. And really, what they were explaining to me is that you can't trust everyone out there. There are many people out there that are untrustworthy. And for me, as a 10-year-old, I didn't think that. I was thinking, this guy wants my snare. Great. I want his money. We got ourselves a deal. wasn't thinking about the fact that, yeah, not everyone out there uh, is trustworthy. And as you go through life, you realize you find more and more of people, unfortunately, are untrustworthy. And so we ask the question, is God trustworthy? Can we trust God? Can we trust his word? Like God makes a lot of big claims in his word. Can we trust every single one? God makes a lot of promises. Can we trust that he will keep every single one? Here in chapter 11... Paul continues to answer the question, has God failed to keep his promises? If Israel is God's chosen people, and if Jesus is the Messiah, then why have so many Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah, and why are so many Jews therefore not saved? Aren't they God's chosen people? Has God failed to keep his promises to Israel? These are the questions that are being brought up. And Paul answers that question for us. In this passage, we will see how God has not failed to keep his promises, even to the Jews, as there are those who have been and who will be saved. We're also going to see that salvation is given by grace alone and is always part of God's sovereign will. It's really what we're looking at here in the first 10 verses of chapter 11. So first we're going to look at that God is the promise keeper, verses 1 through 5. We see God, the promise keeper. God, the promise keeper. We'll look at two points here under God, the promise keeper. The first one is that Paul is an example of God's faithfulness in keeping his promises. We see God is the promise keeper. And we see that Paul is an example of God's faithfulness in keeping his promises. See, there are some who would come to the conclusion and make the accusation that God has completely rejected his people and has broken his promise to save his people, as in the Jews. And so Paul uses himself as an example, stating the fact that he, stating that the, the, the fact that he is saved the fact that Paul is saved proves that God has not completely and utterly rejected Israel, God's chosen people. Because even if one Jewish person has been saved, then no one can make such a claim that God has just completely and utterly forgotten the people of Israel. And indeed, Paul is an example of at least one. Look at verse 1. He says, I asked them, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite. 
a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He asked the question, has God rejected his people? And like several other times in this letter, what does he say? By no means, right? He says he's been saying that. He's saying absolutely not. And he gives himself as an example. He says he himself is an Israelite. He's a descendant of Abraham. He's a member of the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, he is stacking all on the evidence here. He's saying he is an Israelite. He is. In fact, he says he's a direct descendant from Abraham. Like, it doesn't get more clear than that. It doesn't get more Jewish than that. He is from Abraham. And he's from the tribe of Benjamin. So the point is, Paul is a Jew. And Paul's not saying this to brag. But rather, Paul's saying this to point you to the faithfulness of God that he indeed kept his covenant. God has not forgotten his people. Paul's proof of that. And God has not broken his promises. Paul's proof that God could not have possibly rejected all of Israel as he himself is an Israelite. And indeed is saved. And if you think about it, Paul probably would have been the least likely of the Jews to have been saved. Paul was a Christ-hating, a Christ-rejecting Jew. He persecuted Christians. He hated Jesus Christ. And he rejected Jesus as the Messiah. It wasn't his Jewishness or his practice of Judaism that saved him. No, what, what, what was it? It was an encounter with Jesus Christ and by the grace of God that Paul was saved. And so if, if the Jesus-hating Jewish Paul can be saved, then surely others can be saved as well, especially other Jews. That's what he's saying. So what I want us to glean from this is that, one, there are other Jews who can and will come to know Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And we ought to celebrate this. And we have to be part of this. And secondly, what I want us to glean from this is that God can save anyone. That God will work as he wills. That can God save your grandma or your grandpa who completely rejects Christ? Yes. Can God save your friend who hates God and wants nothing to do with him? Yes. Can God save the President of the United States and bring him to saving faith? Yes. If it is his will for them to be saved, then they will be saved. And he has the power and the authority to do so, just as he did with someone like Paul. So Christian, we, we, we must not become discouraged in our evangelism, thinking that, that God would never save these people. And I know at times it can become tiresome and hopeless. And it feels like, what's even the point? They're never going to accept this gospel. Do not grow weary. God has the power to save them. And if it is his will, then he will save them. I'm sure Paul was, was not even on the radar of most first century believers. I'm sure he was, he was the one guy that people thought, well, he's not going to be saved. But God is more powerful. No one is outside the reach of God. Which means that if you are not a Christian, 
you too are not outside the reach of God. Do not think that God could never save you. Do not think that you could never have the faith to believe. Do not think that your sins are too great. In fact, if if you feel completely hopeless, if you feel that you will never be saved, then in some way you're in a good place because you understand your helplessness. And if that's you, then allow me to direct you to Jesus, who is your hope, who can save. Repent of your sins and place your faith in him because he is able to save and he's continuing to do so even today. Now, while Paul is just one example, he does not stop there. But he continues to include another example of how God has not completely and utterly rejected and forgotten about his people. And he proves this by reminding them of the story of Elijah. So next we see that the remnant is an example of God's faithfulness in keeping his promises. Same thing. First we saw that Paul's an example. Now we see that the remnant is an example. The remnant is an example. Paul now brings up the idea of a remnant. And we saw this word, if you remember, in chapter 9, verse 27. Remnant simply is referring to a small surviving part of a group. That's why I called you guys the remnant, because everyone else is sick and dying. Not you. You are the remnant. Okay? You're a small surviving part of our group. Now this word is much more used in the Old Testament than the New Testament. In fact, it's used 62 times in the Old Testament and three times in the New Testament, all of which are referring back to the Old Testament. And in this case, Paul is referring us back to the days of Elijah. And the story brings us back to when Elijah went toe-to-toe with the priests of Baal. Do you remember this story? It's quite a good story. The test was to see whose God is going to send a consuming fire on their altar. And of course, Baal, the false god, failed to do so because he sucks. (laughs) God, however, responded in a miraculous way, consuming with fire, Elijah's sacrifice, all of the wood, all of the stones, all of the soil, and the water in the trench. And not only that, but the fire also consumed 400 prophets and priests of Baal. Jesus Christ. Good job, God. Now, the king of Israel at the time was Ahab. And he was a wicked, he was a wicked king. And even more wicked than he was his wife Jezebel. Girls, don't be like Jezebel. Guys, don't find a girl like Jezebel. My goodness. Someone say something? No, that's, don't do it. Don't do it. Okay, so you got Ahab, bad king, Jezebel, even worse. And when the news reached Jezebel, she quickly made it her life goal to see Elijah be killed. I'm going to kill this guy. And so Elijah fled. And he ran away. And he hid. And the next morning, God asked, what are you doing here, Elijah? And why are you hiding here? What are you doing? And his response is recorded in 1 Kings 19.10. And we also see it here in Romans 11 as well. So I'll read it for you. Verses 3 and 4. 
Elijah says, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what does God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You see, even in the dark days of Elijah, God has saved a remnant. Specifically, 7,000 faithful Jews. God did not break his promise to Israel. He saved a remnant. There were those who did not bow the knee to Baal. There were those who continued to worship God. And still to this day, God has not broken his promise. And Paul is saying, even in his time, in Paul's time, there is a remnant of Jews who are indeed saved. He being one of them. And there were many others as well. In fact, Acts 2 41, the day of Pentecost, we see that 3,000 believed. And it says in verse 47, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. See, while it certainly must have felt like that there were no Jews there that were, that indeed, I'm uh, sorry, that, that, that there were Jews that were receiving Jesus as the Messiah. It felt like, man, all these Jews, that they're all rejecting Jesus the Messiah. What's going on? Paul assures us that there was and there is indeed a remnant who are saved. Look at verse 5. So too at the present time, there is a remnant. See, not, not just in Elijah's time, but still too at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. You see, God always keeps his promises. Even in the darkest of days, even when it appears to us that all hope has been lost, God keeps his promises. Christian, I want to encourage you in this way. While this remnant is talking about the Jews, I do think that we can learn and even relate to some extent with Elijah. As you grow, and as you live more in the world, the more you will realize that we live in dark days. Sin is growing more and more acceptable. And the truths of Christ are becoming more and more rejected. And like Elijah, you may feel like you are the only one who loves God. And you may feel alone. But know that there is a remnant. Not just to believe in Jews, but there's a remnant of all peoples who are indeed in the faith. When you are at school or you are at work and you feel that you are trying to live in accordance to God's will, but everyone else around you is against you. When you feel like saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are trying to kill me. Like Elijah said. Remember that you are not alone. You are part of the family of God. And God is growing his people. The church will prevail. People have been trying to extinguish Christianity and the truth of God for centuries. None have found success. And none ever will. We may live in some dark times. But God is on his throne. And his gospel is being proclaimed. And people are coming to saving faith. And his kingdom is growing. And he is victorious. Do not become too discouraged by what you see around you. But instead remember the victory in Christ. And know that you are not alone. 
And Christian, we ought to come alongside one another as we soldier through this world. Why do Christians so often feel alone? Because they so often fight on the battlefield alone. Too often Christians are content, or maybe they even prefer just to be on their own little island and mind their own business on their own Christian walk. And they don't let people in too close. Otherwise, you might see my sin. And they don't seek to get deeper with others. Otherwise, I might see your sin, and I'm going to have to deal with that. So they live isolated from other Christians, dealing with just surface-level stuff, never going deep with one another. And the result of that, the result of just putting on these, these masks or just getting surface-level relationships with one another, the result of that is that the body of Christ is missing out on a means of grace in which God has blessed us with. The deep fellowship with one another. And so as we soldier through this world and as the sin and the darkness closes in, we feel alone. And we feel helpless. And we've become discouraged. Because like, where is everyone? And like, why am I the only one going through this? Why am I the only one that feels like this? Christian, be a means of grace. Join your brothers and sisters. Bear one another's burdens. Get deep with one another. Get real. Get vulnerable. And know that you are not alone. We have brothers and sisters together that care for one another, that love one another. Allow yourself to be loved and allow yourself to love others. And also in light of this passage, I I, I, want to warn everyone in this room that you must beware of the danger of presuming your status with God based on who you are. In the example of Elijah, there was a remnant that was saved, right? 7,000 people. That means that there were other thousands, likely hundreds of thousands, who were not saved. There were those who were Jews outwardly, those who were Abraham's natural children who were not children of the promise. There were those who were part of the nation but worshipped Baal. And were not saved. There were many who were Israelites. Who had the blessings of being Israelites. And yet they were not saved. My warning to everyone here in this room. Is that just because you are around Christians. Just because you do quote the Christian things. Does not mean that you are a Christian. Salvation does not come from your ancestry. Or your nationality. Or your lifestyle. Or your good works. Or whatever it may be. Salvation comes from God alone. If you are here and you believe that you have salvation, I ask you, where does that salvation come from? Where does your salvation come from? From your parents? From your good life? From your lifestyle? Because you live like a Christian? Where does it come from? Salvation comes from God alone. Nowhere else can we have salvation. So we see first that God 
is the promise keeper. Secondly, we see that God is the giver of salvation. Verses 6 and 10. God is the giver of salvation. We have a couple points here. First is that salvation is only obtained by the grace of God. Salvation is only obtained by the grace of God. Paul goes on to expound on the statement he made in verse 5, that we are chosen by grace. Remember verse 5? So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And look what he says in verse 6. But if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. It's like he's just talking to us. He's like, what are you talking about? If it's by grace, it's not on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would not be grace. Like, it really seems quite simple. And yet we can so often misunderstand the true meaning and the depth of God's grace. We are so inclined to to forget or, or, or even reject grace. And instead, we embrace works as part of our acceptance to God. It's possible. I, I, you know, it, so, so, some people are like, why do you throw verse 6 in here? It just... It seems out of place. And, and some people just kind of reject it. Like, oh, he's just randomly threw that in. Randomly was talking about grace. And maybe, maybe he does. I think maybe it's possible that Paul inserts this here because many very easily could have thought, that's great that God saved the remnant in Elijah's day. I'm sure that those 7,000 people, that they were faithful to God. In fact, they are the 7,000 who did not bow down to Baal. So let's give them credit for being faithful and not bowing down. That's great. Of course they're part of the remnant. Because look how good they were. And because of this kind of thinking, it can be so easy for us to fall to. I believe Paul says, no, it's not by works. It's by grace. It's not that some people were, were better than others, and so those better people were part of the remnant. Like God's like, oh, okay, you guys aren't good, but you guys are good. So here, you can be part of the remnant. I don't think that's what it was. But it's because God, in his grace, chose the remnant to believe. In fact, he says that in verse 5, chosen by grace. And so the point I want to make tonight is that grace and works are completely incompatible. They're completely opposed to each other. He says in verse 6, if it is by grace, it's no longer by works. If someone is saved by grace, then it cannot be by works. possible. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And on the flip side, if someone were saved by works, then it can't be by grace. Impossible. Otherwise, works would not be works. So you see, these two things, they they contradict. So which is it? Are you saved by grace or by works? And all of Scripture will point you to the grace of God. And I don't know if it's any clearer than Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. You guys know it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that out of yourself. It is a gift from God, not a result of what? Of works. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. Are you saved by grace or by works? It can't be both. 
If you're saved by grace, well, then that eliminates works. If you're saved by works, well, that eliminates grace. So which is it? Are you saved by grace or are you saved by works? Grace. You're saved by grace. So do not for a second be tempted to think that you are somehow saved by works, that in some way your works bring you closer to God, that in some way your works earn you credit with God, that in some way your works, it makes you more attractive to God. It's not that God elected you because he saw how great of a person you could become, and so he chose you because of your good efforts. No. If you are a Christian, God did not choose you because of anything within yourself. Christian, you have been chosen and you have been saved because of grace. That's it. End of story. Because of grace. Not because you could be such a valuable asset to the team. That's why he chose you. Not because he knew you would choose him. Not because you've lived a better life than others. No. Not because of anything except the grace of God. Christian, you must never forget the grace of God. Never forget. The grace of God is what has given you life. The grace of God is what has opened your eyes. The grace of God is what has given you hope. The grace of God is what continues to sustain you today and will continue to sustain you throughout all of eternity. Oh, how we need the grace of God and we would be nothing but a soul damned to hell if it were not for the grace of God. That's all that we are. Do you love the grace of God? What is better than the grace of God? Nothing. Now, if you're not a Christian, you must never dismiss the grace of God. For it is your only hope for salvation. You can pile a stack of works Higher than the tallest mountain, and it will not bring you an inch closer to God. But a drop of God's saving grace is all that you need to wash away all of your sins. Do not pursue works. In fact, works get in the way. Works and grace are utterly opposed to each other. Forget works. See the grace of God. Now, works will come, okay? If, if the grace of God has truly entered your life and you are genuinely in the faith, then works will follow, says James chapter 2. But no, Christian, that's, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about your relationship with God. And in that regard, what you need is not works. What you need is grace. That means letting go of anything you think that you bring to the table. And instead, you rest in the finished work of Christ and the gift of salvation that is freely given to you by Him. Salvation is only obtained by the grace of God. Lastly, what we see is that salvation is given according to God's sovereign will. Salvation is given According to God's sovereign will. I'm sorry, can you turn on the AC? Is it? Is it? Are you sure? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I am already cold. Oh no, we're losing. 
Salvation is given and according to God's sovereign will. We see ourselves here in verses 7 through 10. And really what this is, verses 7 through 10, Paul summarizes his main points from really chapter 9 up until now. Remember chapter 9 through 11 is like really one section here. And these little verses, he's kind of summarizing chapter 9 all the way to where we are here. He reiterates his point that there are those who are elect and there are those who are hardened. Those who are elect have been chosen by God purely by his grace. As he just mentioned in verse 6, that it's not by works. That God does not choose us based on our works. He chooses his people solely by his grace and his grace alone. But not all are elect, as he says. There are those who are hardened. And they are hardened because they have sinned against God. They are hardened because God has chosen not to intervene. He has chosen not to show mercy on them. And instead, he has chosen to pass over them in his mercy. And that's wrong of God, one may accuse. How could God not show mercy to some? He chooses to show mercy to some and chooses not to show mercy to others. How can he do that? It is not wrong of God to withhold his mercy on anyone. It is right and just for him to withhold his mercy. To say that it is wrong of God is to claim that, that we deserve his mercy. As if we, we deserve it in some way and nothing is further from the truth. There will not be a single soul in hell that has been sent there unjustly. Not one. They will be there due to their own sin and due to their own rebellion against God. Not because God is unjust. You see, Christian, this, this really displays the amazing grace that God has shown to you. Is it not? A salvation is given in according to God's sovereign will. That's why you're saved. That's why you're saved, because of his sovereign will. That is why you will not spend eternity in the depths of hell. That is why you are free from the bondage of sin and why you now have eternal life and now you have everlasting joy in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Why? Because God sovereignly willed that you would. That's why. Because God chose you. Because he saved you by his grace. Not because you're better than the non-Christian who rejected the gospel. For if it had not been for God's electing grace, you would still be rejecting him too. Thanks be to God for his grace. Thanks be to God for his sovereign electing choice. That for some divine reason, he chose you. Now a warning to those in here who are not genuinely in the faith. While these verses talk about the electing grace of God, they also talk about the hardening of hearts, specifically to Israel. And the point of these verses is to show that even though Israel had all the spiritual blessings, if you remember that he said at the beginning of chapter 9, these blessings can become a curse. And if misused and misunderstood, can harden your heart. That these blessings have become a snare, a trap, a stumbling block, a retribution for them, as he says. And in a similar way, Many of you 
maybe not all, but many of you have grown up in a Christian environment and have experienced the blessings of that. You've been brought up hearing the truth of God's word. That you've been brought up hearing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've been brought up being taught about how to live your way, how to live your life in a way that honors God. And you can take these advantages and you can be blessed by them. Being led to faith. Or you can take these advantages and you can allow them to become a snare and a trap. And a stumbling block. And time and time again, I've seen young men and women take these advantages of growing up in a quote Christian household, and they take these advantages and they hold them up as if they're reasons for their salvation. They say, "See, this is why I'm saved," and they build a false sense of salvation, a salvation based on their own works, and it becomes a stumbling block. Or on the flip side, time and time again, I've seen young men and women take these advantages of growing up in a Christian home. And instead, they grow bitter towards the gospel. And they grow bitter towards Jesus Christ. Do not let that happen to you. Don't let that happen to you. You are blessed far greater than most people people in the world. You have God's word in front of you. You're being taught the truth of God's word and his gospel. And these blessings are indeed blessings. And they ought to lead you to faith in Jesus Christ. But that is the difference. You must have faith. And that faith must be in Jesus Christ. You must not think that your works or your lifestyle or your family history, your family tradition or anything else is the basis of your salvation. Your salvation is based on faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ. It's not up to your parents. It's not up to your church or your culture or your environment to determine whether you're genuinely a Christian or not. Salvation is in accordance to God's sovereign will. He is in control of all things, even your salvation. So if you are not a Christian, ask that he would save you. Ask that he would give you faith to believe and that he would give you a heart of repentance. And then move forward. Move forward and place your faith in him and repent of your sins. And be saved. And if you are a Christian, remember that it is all because of God and His grace and His sovereign will that you are saved. That's it. That's why you're saved. Because of God and His grace. So as we close, we ask again Has God failed? keep his promises no God has never broken his promises and God never will even in the dark days when it seems like he's not doing what he said he would do we can trust and we can know with confidence that God is working and that he always keeps his promises so Christian be at peace 
Be at peace and know that God is working today and that he always keeps his promises. We must not worry about what tomorrow holds. We must not worry about what our eternity holds. We must not worry if God is in control. We must not worry if God cares about our lives. In short, we must not worry. What is there to worry? Our lives, every aspect of our lives is in the hands of God. What is there to worry? Whose better hands are they to be in than God's? If you're not a Christian, know that God is a God who never lies and who keeps all of his promises. He is trustworthy. When his word says that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, it is true. When his word says that you are saved by grace through faith and not a result of works, it is true. When his word says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, that whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. It is true. If you are not a Christian, know with confidence that you are at enmity with God. And your only hope is in Jesus Christ. Come to Jesus and be saved. God is the promise keeper. And he is the giver of salvation. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you are a trustworthy God. That you keep all of your promises. Thank you, God, that... You are the giver of salvation. Thank you that we have hope in Jesus Christ. Thank you that we are not left alone. Thank you that you are still working and you are victorious. Thank you, God, that we have nothing to worry. For you are God and you are on your throne. Lord, I pray that you would embolden us. I pray that we would have trust in you. I pray that we would love you and serve you. And live for you. Lord God, please be with us in this time as we discuss. I pray that we would be real. That we would be vulnerable. That we would come alongside each other. In the ways in which that we need. For the edification of the body and for your glory we pray. In Christ's name. Amen.